Well, it's good to be here with all of you today. If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Jude. Jude. It is the, the second from the end uh, in your New Testament right before Revelation. We will be starting a new letter today, a new book today. And uh, as you're turning there, I, I would like to say that, uh, you know, at, providentially, without it in mind at all, uh, I, I've preached through three full books of the Bible, uh, and all three of them being James, Jonah, and Jude, which are all the names of Ryan's sons. Uh, that, that, it was not designed that way, uh, it just so happens to work out that way, so uh, uh, here we are to... Um, you know, if you guys happen to have another one, think about perhaps uh, Obadiah or something, or something. We can do something like that. Just so we can keep it even, you know, to New Testament, New Testament. Uh, anyway, so it's, it's a pleasure to be with all of you today. Um, as we begin, this is going to be more of an introduction, uh, but I will also be going over the first four verses. Honestly, after I got done preparing for this, I realized it probably could have been done in two weeks as opposed to one, so there is a lot to get through today. Uh, but this is, Jude is the, is the fifth shortest by word count book of the Bible. Uh, there are only four uh, others. Uh, Third John, Second John, Philemon, and Obadiah is shorter than, uh, than this book here. And I think it might be perhaps for that reason, it's, it's you know, if you're flipping through your Bible, you, you have to be intentional about landing on Jude because you're not going to see it. It's only one chapter and only uh, over 25 uh, verses. <clears throat> but I think there's other reasons why we don't hear the book of Jude taught very often these days. And I hope through over the, the next coming weeks, we will uh, see why that is, why I think that is. Um, yeah, so this week, next week, and the following week, we'll be looking at this book and, and possibly even beyond. However, Jude is the last book that comes in a series of epistles that are called the general epistles. Or if you were to look in Calvin's day, it would be called the Catholic epistles. Now, when we say Catholic epistles, we don't mean Roman Catholic epistles. We use it in the same way that we use the word Catholic in the Apostles' Creed, right? This is the, these are universal epistles. Um, uh, epistles, and they are called that because they don't have a specific or a specified audience. They obviously did have a, speci a specific audience, other than they, they wouldn't have written it the way that they did. It was to a specific people, but we don't know who that specific people is. Now, uh, starting with Hebrews all the way through Jude, those are the general uh, epistles. And you know, if you if you look at the introduction to each one of those. Uh, different letters, uh, you, you'll see uh, that it, you might see in, in James that it's written to the, to the 12 tribes of Israel dispersed, right? We still don't know where they are or which specific people it was. Uh, Second John is addressed to the chosen lady and her children. We don't know who those people were. Uh, so that's why we look at these, uh, these general. Now, when Jude wrote this, he had meant for it specifically to be uh, copied and spread around to all of the different uh, churches, and um, although we believe I, there's very, very good reason in the text to believe that he was writing to a Jewish audience, because of some of the sources that he uses and things like that. But either way, it was meant to get out to many communities. And once we see what this book is about, we will see why it was so necessary for it to get to multiple communities, and why it is still no, so necessary for us to see this letter as Jude wrote it in our own day, because it does, in fact, apply to the church. From the moment that Jude wrote this to the moment that Christ returns, this will apply to the church universally. 
So uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then I'll read our four verses, and we'll get into uh, the, the text here. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, and our great God, we come before you, Lord, and we, uh, we confess that we are weak, oh God, uh, that we are hungry, Lord, for your word. I pray, God, that you would help us today, uh, that uh, by your Holy Spirit you would, you would uh, come and that you would commune with your people, Lord, that you would open eyes and open ears and open hearts, oh God, and that you would help me. Uh, Lord, that you would move me out of the way and that your spirit would proclaim the truth of your word, that which you would have your people know, that which you would have your people feast upon today. Oh God, we, we pray that you would be lifted up, that you would be glorified. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The letter of Jude, verses 1 through 4. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master, Lord Jesus Christ. So as we read our passage today, you will have noticed that we've been given some crucial information. Uh, and, and really the four things that I'm going to be going over today is the author, the recipient, or the recipients of the letter. We're going to be going over the warning and the call to arms, which is what we have seen in these first uh, four verses. Now, the author of this book identifies himself with the very first word of it, Jude. Right, Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, it can be a little challenging when we're trying to figure out which Jude, because there are multiple Judes that, that are identified throughout the New Testament. And there are multiple James, which are, you know, in the, in the New Testament. This can be uh, very uh, confusing. And as we try to sort out who the author is and who he is the brother of, uh, we have to look at some other things that were going on around this time. We have to figure out when this book was dated or when this letter was dated. So uh, it can be hard to nail down. But it's generally assumed, it's almost universally assumed, that this letter of Jude was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, one of the reasons for that is Jude was a Jew, and he was writing to Jews based off of uh, the, the sources that he uses later on in the letter. And it's important because the destruction of the temple was only the most cataclysmic event within, you know, that took place for the Jewish people over the period of, of the most cataclysmic event over centuries. It would and it should be at least reference had this taken place after the destruction uh, of the temple. So the other thing, and it's something that we will be going to often as we continue to work our way through Jude, is the striking resemblance that the letter of Jude has to 2 Peter chapter 2. It is striking. Uh, it's as close as you can get. You know, it's not word for word, but it, it is point for point. That, that much we can say uh, for sure. And we can accurately date the book, the second epistle of Peter, which took place around 64 AD. And I preached on that. It's been a long time ago, like seven or eight months ago. But I did demonstrate that when I was going through uh, the, the second chapter of, of Second Peter. Now, 
That would put this book of Jude in between the year 64 AD and the year 70 AD. Well, why is this important? And how does this help us determine which Jude wrote the book? Well, there were two, uh, well, actually, let's first look at James. So James has, the book of James has the exact same problem. We have the same problem trying to determine which James, but the timing helps us because there are only two James really to speak of. There is the James of son of Zebedee who died in the year 44 AD, right? This is during the time of Stephen, uh, Stephen the apostle in, in Acts. We see that. Uh, he died prior to all of that happening or right after all of that happening. If we're looking in the year 60 here, if this person is the brother of James, it can't be to the brother of James, the son of Zebedee. It's too late for that. Okay, uh, and that that is important. Well, really, that brings us down to, to two Jews. One Jude, because Jude is short for the name Judas. This is either Jude that's spoken of in Luke chapter six, verse sixteen, or this is Judas Iscariot, which it can't be in the year sixty-four because we know he hung himself after Christ was crucified. Right. So this has to be the James who is half brother to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the Jew who is also the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose brother is James. And this is the same James who is in Acts chapter 15. You know, um, this is not meant to be, you know, there's some of you that believe that Mary was perpetually a virgin. This is not the place where I will be discussing any of that. I am saying, I'm teaching it uh, uh, the way that I've executed the passage. This is Jude, the half-brother of Christ. Now, what's interesting about that is that he doesn't identify himself that way. Let's look at verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. The Greek word that's used for bondservant there, and it's, it's actually the word doulos, it's the word slave. Now, it's interesting that Jude would not have identified himself, I am the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ and the brother of James. That, that would be a way for him to stamp his approval or, or, or to demonstrate the authority that he has by saying, this is who I am. But what he actually communicates is, I am the slave of Jesus Christ. This is not simply just my, my, my brother, but my master. It's a, it's a, a, a beautiful look at the, at the reverence and and the, the position that he takes when he writes this uh, this letter. Now, um, if we if we look what comes next, we are going to see who the recipients are. Now that we have the author down, let's move to the recipients. And it's here at the back half of uh, of verse one. He says, "To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept." For Jesus Christ. This is quite the description for what it is to be a believer. This is, uh, I want you to notice the position first of the believer. Those who are called assumes that there is one who calls. Those who are beloved in God the Father, that assumes that there is one who loves first, right? And we get this from First uh, John, right? We love him because he first loved us. There is one who loves first and kept for Jesus Christ. This assumes that there is a keeper and we are those who are being kept. He is sending a warning. This is written to true blood-bought believers. 
Why is something like that so important to, to show? So if you, if you look at the way he has this set up, that, the, that there is the called and that there is the loved and that these are those who are kept, this is a loose paraphrasing of the Ordo Salutis. It's incomplete for sure, but we have the, or, the order of salvation is what we're seeing here. The, these are not people who are just called generally. These are people who were called effectually. These are people who have responded in faith, not some kind of mental assent to the idea of God. You tell me the gospel, and it's, okay, now I understand Jesus. Yeah, I think I might be able to believe in that Jesus. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody who has heard the call of God, somebody who has responded in faith because of the love that God has shown them through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. This is someone who knows God, not someone who just says that they know God. They were only able to do so through the love and the grace shown by God through the Holy Spirit. And having been called and shown this great love by God, they are being kept. They are being kept and they will be kept by, for Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by his granting them per perseverance, which I'm not pulling that out of nowhere. Jude actually reinforces this point at the end of the letter. Uh, we're not, like I said, we're not really merely talking about, about uh, professing Christians. We're talking about um, new creatures that we read about in uh, 2 Corinthians. Now, um, why would we need to say, why would we need to point this out, right? Because what we, we're going to be alluding to in this letter and what's being alluded to in, in multiple other letters. I know uh, one of the first questions you ever have if you read through the book of Hebrews, you get, you know, you get to the part where it says that people can fall away, or you start reading about apostates, about people that have tasted these, these things of the Holy Spirit and, and tasted these things of Christ, and then we see them falling away and urges, you know, the, the writers of the scriptures urging you to not be one of the ones that falls away. Keep yourself in the love of God, which is actually in this book here. What we're talking about when we, when we see that this is addressed to actual believers, we understand that actual believers are kept for Jesus Christ. That has nothing to do with us, right? We have to understand who the author is. We have to understand who the recipients are. And he defines the recipients beautifully here. And we don't have to let that type of thing go. Um, so we'll get more into that as we, as we go along. But I want to move now to... The call to arms and the warning, and that starts in verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you, write to you, appealing that you should contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. We have the call to arms. Jude was planning to write to these people anyways. He says that here right at the very beginning. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. He planned to write to these people. Now, uh, he wanted, what he originally had wanted to do is he had wanted to navigate the glories of Christ. He wanted to navigate the goodness of what it was to be saved. He wanted to, 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 to relish in these facts and, and to, to, to uplift everybody. But something else has happened. Something else more urgent needed to be dealt with. While he wanted to write to them about these one, about this one specific thing, or these, these specific things, something more urgent has come up, and now he has to change course 
And we see it needs to be dealt with immediately and severely. And we see this in what he appeals to them to do. Let's read a little bit further. To contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Well, what's the next natural question? What is the once for all faith handed down to the saints? Seems kind of vague. Um, I'll give you a, a short answer and then we'll actually look at it in scripture. The once for all faith handed down to the saints was the means by which all of the believers were called to those who are the called. What are we called to God by? The gospel of Jesus Christ, right? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will read verses 1 through 4. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which also you were saved. If you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Stop there for a second. Right. I just brought up an example of this a second ago. So, uh, unless you believe in vain. Remember, those who have not believed in vain, those who continue to believe, are those who have been affectionately called and beloved by God and are being kept for Christ. Right? We, we have to look at what he's saying here. We take this as a, in a wooden reading, and we can sit here and think, oh my gosh, did I, am I the one that believed in vain? If I, Christ has come in and really saved me, I could be one of the ones that have believed in vain. That's not the case if you belong to Christ. I just wanted to point that out. Let's continue on. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We can stop there. This is a basic overview of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. It's very, very basic. Now, of course, if we had more time, if you want to see the gospel exposited over multiple chapters in the most beautiful way that I don't think could ever be recreated, we could go through the book of Romans. If we wanted to add all of the other elements to the gospel, the incarnation, we could add the, the, the ascension into heaven. We could add him coming again in glory, the judge of the living and the dead. There's multiple aspects of the gospel that are missing here, but... For our purposes today, this is the gospel. This is the once for all faith handed down to the saints. And it's all of what we get in scripture, right? This is the once for all faith handed down to the saints. Every single one of you is either looking at it on your phone or holding it in your hands, right? And we are being called to earnestly contend for this. Now, it's interesting that that phrase to earnestly contend for in the Greek, it's far more forceful than just to simply uh, 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 contend earnestly. The Greek word there is ep agonizomai, is the word in the Greek. Now, ep means upon, and agonizomai is, is where we get our English word to agonize. Agony. We are to agonize for the faith. That's been once for all handed down to the saints. Now, the in, the way that he in, the, the the way that this sentence is structured is in a way uh, he uses it almost in the sense of of a of a race or or a boxing match. This is contention like one like an athlete would, to the point where we would strain ourselves that you would give everything that you have to the point where your body is about to break down. We are to contend this way. For the once for all, or for the faith that's once for all uh, handed down to the saints. That kind of puts it in a little bit of a different light, doesn't it? 
right? That this is what we're actually supposed to be, the way that we are to be contending uh, for the faith. And in verse 4, he shows us who the enemy is. For certain persons who have crept in unnoticed. Stop there. This truly is, this is something that is more sinister. This is something that is taking place from the inside, right? And his message is not to look out because these people are coming, but that these people are already here. They have crept in unnoticed. These, these per people that, that, that have, these certain persons that have crept in uh, unnoticed. And, and, and really what he's talking about is this is demonic. This is something that happens that's demonic. Now, if we were to look, if we take the, look, the, the view of the church and we were to look outside of the walls of the church, we could look out on society and say, okay, some of the stuff that's happening out there is evil and it is demonic. And it absolutely is. But this, this is far more sinister because it takes place within the walls where we come and we worship and where we teach and where we preach. This is uh, espionage. This is in, infiltrate and tear it down from the inside. And, and this is really par for the course for who Satan is, right? Uh, he understands perfectly well that he has absolutely no hope and that if he was to have one shot to bring this thing down, it's not going to take place from, it's not going to take place on the outside. It's going to have to take place on the inside. He knows scripture. He twists scripture, but he knows scripture. He understands that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church being the battering ram, the, the, the gates of hell being those gates. That's not going to happen. He has no chance to do anything from the outside. And if he did have a chance, it would have to take place uh, from the inside. And guys, this has been taking place for a long, long time long time. Some of even some of the of our New Testament uh, authors are, were dealing with Gnosticism. They were dealing with, with these constant battles that were taking place within the church that had found their way into the church, and we are still dealing with this today. It is very effective. It's a very effective tool for you know that, that Satan uses in order to, to lead Whoever they can astray, even the very elect, for a time. Of course, we'll get into that later, what, what that actually means. But these certain persons, these sinister, demonically Satan-driven persons, have crept in unnoticed. And it's just that. Unnoticed. They are unnoticeable from the outside. This, you know... Um, Condemnation isn't always obvious, right? When we meet somebody who is who doesn't belong to Christ, so it's not it's not as if somebody comes in, you know, towing their you know their their New Age bag full of tarot cards and chopper crystals and all that stuff, you know, with the whole turban, look, you know, looking uh, like a gypsy. It's it's not it's that would raise eyebrows, ears would go up and be like, okay, maybe this is that's not that. This is someone who comes in who has the million dollar smile. Who, who, who fits right in. This is somebody who creeps in uh, unnoticed. They're not going to be like, hey, you know, after church today, we're going to go read the book of Wiccan. You know, how about you come over to the house and we'll, we'll do a seance. That, 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 it's, that's not the kind of things that we're talking about. Uh, this, this, is, um, this is someone, though, who is, e who is evil in their intentions. This is someone who gains a foothold, who stays for a while, 
who does not show, I mean, over time, obviously, they will start to show their fruits, right? They, we will know them by their fruits. But it's, this is something that's not easy to see. And, guys, there are, there are whole denominations that are suffering at the hands of this very thing right now. If you look at some of the way that the PCA is going, if you look at some of the way uh, that, that the Southern Baptist Convention is going, it all started with people creeping in unnoticed. And it's a long game. They're not going to come in and change the, 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 our liturgy, you know, the first day that they come into the church. They're not going to change our, our, our uh, full, the, the, the leadership's full subscription to the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is something that takes place over time, okay? Uh, and ultimately what they do is they twist the grace of our God into licentiousness. What does that mean? The license or the freedom to sin. The license to do that which God says we should not do. And by that we deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And now we can see the urgency for Jude writing this letter to those whom he is writing it to. And these are the general epistles. He's writing it for us. This applies to us today. We can absolutely read it in that way. Now... Not that the threats are on the way, but that they're already here. Now, the phrase uh, crept in unnoticed, the picture of that would be like water seeping through a door or a window. And what happens when water comes in through a crevice in the house? It begins to lower. It sinks in. It sinks down into, uh, and, and you can't tell. It, it's interesting. You know, you can, have, you can have a leak. You can have a small leak going on inside your house and never even know it until what? Until a puddle is formed, or until the entire carpet is soaked, and by that time, how much damage has already been done? This is the kind of thing that happens in the exact same way. And what he's calling them to, he's calling them to be aware, to be diligent, that this is not coming, it is already here, and what we don't want is to notice this thing by the time the entire room is flooded. We want to notice this thing now in church. This is where I would argue that this is exactly where the church in America finds itself today. We find ourselves there, here, in that very place today. God's word has been twisted in such a way to give license to every kind of sin that is clearly seen in the word of God that he does not allow. And now, because we have generations of this, we have generations of, le of leak, of leaking going on here. Now, everybody's looking at themselves saying, how is it that we got here? How is it that not just the room is flooded, but the living room and the kitchen and all the bedrooms, there's water everywhere. And we're sitting here treading water, now trying to combat this thing when now the inmates... It seems as though if the inmates run the asylum. This is where we find ourselves today in the church. And, and, and you know, it's whether, guys, we can look, look outside of even today. Let's go all the way back to the first century. Let's think about the ways that things have been twisted in order to allow sin to creep in through the door. Listen to this. Whether it's denying who Christ is as the scriptures describe him, that's taken place since the first century, uh, who he is in his person, his natures, his will, what he is going to do, what he's not going to do, what he allows, what he forbids, all of these things twisted. It has been twisted. 
It is being twisted. And it seems as if there is just this ever small voice that is trying to come out and challenge these false teachings about the Christ that purchased us. And it is just this ever small voice. Who is the ever small voice? What Jude talks about at the back end of Jude verse 1. To those who are the called, the beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And it can be so discouraging, right? This is a, this is a, I mean, it's, while there is so much optimism, right? There is a war to fight. We have an enemy who is huge and it can seem insurmountable, but even for our prayer meetings on every Tuesday night, we talk about how all of these things that we see going on in the world. And, and um, I can remember, I, I remember this vividly. I talked about this a little bit last week when I was in Alabama, but when I was there, uh, I can remember when I first got saved. I can remember when the Lord forgave me for my sins and started drawing me to himself. And I wanted to learn more about God, but I worked a lot. I, you know, I was working 12, 13 hour days. I couldn't just, uh, I couldn't just read the gospel all that, you know, the gospels all day long. I had to listen to things. And I made the mistake of going to YouTube and typing in Christian sermon, enter, clicking the top one and then letting the algorithm do the heavy lifting for me. It took me four days of 12 hour days to get out of Joel Osi. That was number one. And when I did graduate, I graduated to Joyce Meyer. <clears throat> When the algorithm decided I needed to move on, that's where I ended next. And after I listened to multiple days of Joyce Meyer, I finally got to Stephen Furtick. And after that, I continued moving on and on and on. And I'm so proud of myself because I'm here listening to preachers talking about the word of God, right? Until one fateful day, I landed on the most shocking sermon ever preached. Paul Washer. And what I had to do is I had to take my truck from where I was at on my route, and I know my supervisor's not listening to this, so I'm not going to get a write-up or anything, but I had to stop what I was doing, and I had to drive home, and I had to go get in my closet, and I fell face flat on the ground, and I laid there for about 45 minutes, not saying anything, because I had an understanding. Somebody had finally taught. It took days to get to the point where somebody was talking about the holiness of God. And who, and who the scriptures said that I was up until that moment. The first time that I ever actually repented, I was actually shown what I was. And the point is, for all of this, how much did I have to wade through to get to that point? How is it that someone who is trying to come to Christ or someone who is, who is newly saved and is not part of a church, how are they to find what God says? about himself. How much false teaching do we have to go through before we actually find a responsible, dedicated preacher, someone who fears God? How long does it take to actually get to that point? Because I'm not the guy that opened up the phone and immediately landed on RC Scroll. That wasn't my story. That's not what happened uh, to me. That is a testament to the fact that there are generations of Christians that did not heed the words, the warning, and the call to arms that Jude has made. And what we are here doing today, I am calling the Church of Jesus Christ, all of you brothers and sisters, that we need to be very, very aware 
and very, very cautious for our own church in this. I love Vanguard because, uh, and I didn't understand it at the time, but they had said, you know, at Vanguard, one of the policies that we have is we have, we, we, we leave, we guard the front door and we leave the back door open. We guard the back door or the front door and we leave the back door open. We are careful about the things that people say when they come in. We, we, we examine, we, we look to, to make sure, right? We see how people are living. The pastors that we're doing, our jobs are to be reaching out to these people and to be meeting their families and seeing how things are constructed. And if it starts to go south at some point, the back door is always open so that we can move them through. This is how a church is supposed to operate, how we are supposed to be diligent in the fact that we are guarding, that we are earnestly contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And the one thing I love about Reformed folks and everybody who's ever stood up here and taught during Sunday school class will be able to tell you, if you are off in what you are teaching, you will be, it will be made very aware to you where you were off in what you taught that day. Or if somebody had questions, and there's sometimes you're let known where you were off in teaching that day, and you might not have even been off, but you better have your resources for where you got that from, and you better be able to demonstrate that, because we have to be careful about what we hear from God's word. It can be used, it has been used, for some of the most sinister things that have taken place in this world. This has been abused to the point of allowing child slavery. It's undisputable, because it was twisted. And there was being license, license was being given for sin because of the abuse of God's word, guys. And that's what this is. This is, we must be aware, we must take off our arms. And when I call, when I say that we're being warned that we must take off our arms, I'm not talking about our weapons. We know that our weapons are not of this world, right? We're talking about that which has been given us to destroy fortresses, but what do we do when we find out that the fortresses are in our own backyard? Because there's fortresses in our own backyard as the church here in America. You know, the, the, the twisted church of liberalism, and we talked a little bit about this in our prayer meeting this last Tuesday, but the twisted church of liberalism will tell us that the greatest sin that we can commit is to not love like Jesus Christ has loved. And that above anything this says, we are to love as Jesus Christ has loved. And if we're not affirming what? Sin, homosexuality, if we're not affirming all the things that God says he hates, then we are not loving like Jesus Christ. And that's not a Christian, somebody who doesn't love like Jesus Christ. Guys, this is why it is so important that we earnestly contend for the once for all the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. We must know what this says. If someone says, well, you're not affirming someone who believes that they're a boy or a girl, that's not very loving. No, you don't understand what the definition of love is. You don't understand what the definition of Jesus Christ is. We get what we know about the Lord through his word. And what we do know is that love knows greater knows no one greater than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. That's what love is. If we want to look at the love that God shows between himself and his church, we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we can see God's perfect love. That's what love is. Not 
love the way you define it, the way that love is that God defines it. And then we actually can take apart the rest of their argument that Jesus is this hippie that just loves everybody. He's not going to step on anybody's toes. He is just down here and he sat with tax collectors and prostitutes. They love to say that. And he did. What did he say after the tax collectors and the prostitutes came to know God? Go and sin no more. It's not as if Jesus just stopped there, but it's preached as if Jesus just stopped there. He doesn't, right? They, they want to bring this, this Jesus that, that, only, that only is just love all the time. And, and he, he came in like a lamb. He's so tender and he's so merciful. He is all of those things. He is tender. He is merciful. He did come in like a lamb. But the one part that they're not remembering, and it, if you are ever earning, contending earnestly for the faith with a liberal Christian, someone who comes out of this damnable, teaching, because that's exactly what it is. Have them open up to the other description of Jesus Christ that I'm going to read for you today. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it, called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges, and he wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When's the last time you heard that sermon preached from a liberal Christian church? Never. Not my Jesus. My Jesus only loves. He is affirming of everyone that comes into this church. Really? Really? We must be diligent. Brothers and sisters, to you, how is it Let's give the benefit of the doubt to the first church that was planted in America. And let's say that they heeded the words of Jude. And they guarded the front door. And they were careful. And they aimed to be confessional. Whether they were or whether they weren't, that's not really the point. How do we get from a confessional church to what we have today? How does that happen on the watch of people who know the words of the Lord? who have read through this book of Jude before. How did it get this bad? Right? How is it that we find ourselves here? We have to understand that these people that have crept in unnoticed, and we will get very, very, very deep into the rest of what this says about those folks, because Jude has a lot to say about those folks. That these were people who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Their condemnation is going to be severe. And that these ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, 
Their end is sure, and it is marked out by a sovereign God. I don't want to to sit here and 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 look at all of the all of the the the, the, the bad shape of the world and, and where we find ourselves and how did we let it get this bad and all of these things. I, I we're we're reformed Christians in here. We know that there is a sovereign God, that He has His purposes for letting it go this way. That His power and His mercy and His wrath will be displayed. All the, the fullness of His character will be displayed in in the crazy amount of sin that has taken place. Uh, uh, in this in this world, and we are not to be afraid. Notice that in this, he does not tell them to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. Why? Because we are the called. We are the beloved in God, and we are kept, and we are being kept, and we will be kept. He gives the definition of what the believer is right at the beginning for a reason, right? We don't have a reason to fear, but we are called to be aware. And we are called to give a reasoned defense, an apologia for the hope that we have within us. We have been tasked to go and to tear down strongholds, right? To take captive thoughts that set themselves up against God, the knowledge of God. This is the call for the Christian. With that being said, we are to be at peace without rest. That is the point of the, of the book of Jude, and I, I hope to get into that going forward. But we don't have to fear because we belong to the Lord. Praise the one who paid our debts and raised this life up from the dead, who's given us purpose, who's given us a job to do. Every single one of us has that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, O Lord God, without your help, O Lord, without you preserving your church, Lord, we are, we fall, we will fall prey to every one of these things apart from your sovereign protection, from your, your power, and from your watchful eye, O Lord, but we know, God, that we praise a God that does not sleep as men do. We worship a God who has promised that his church, that he will oversee his church, that the evil one has no power over his church, and that he keeps his church. Oh God, cause us to look upon you, to trust in you for this, O oh Lord, but to be watchmen, to be ever watchful, to be watchful in our prayers, to be watchful in in our, in, our, in our church services, Lord, and in our fellowship, oh God. Not, not to strike down people, Lord, but that we might guard that which you have given, that which you have handed down, this faith that is once for all given to the saints, oh Lord. May we be rooted in this. May we be pouring into this. Oh God, help us. We ask all of these things in the Lord, in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. What was that? What was that quote at the end about peace?